This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 190. And the quote of the day is from Rusty Eric, who said, When you allow your ego to control your thoughts, everything you believe becomes an illusion. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And this session is brought to you by my friends at DW Drums. And I love DW. I've been playing them for years. They make great drums, but they're also great people. They're a family-owned business out there in Oxnard, California. If you ever get a chance, go to DW, and you can take a tour of the whole factory. They make all their drums there. Or 90-some percent of their drums are made right there in their fa- in their factory in Oxnard. So check them out at dwdrums.com. Now, the interview that I have today, this interview for me is monumental because Bernard Purdy is one of my favorite drummers, if not my favorite drummer of all time. He's if if he's not number one, he's definitely in the top three. So one of my favorites, uh, I've been trying to get him on the podcast for a very long time. And he's always been super uh, cordial. Every time I would call him, we would try to set up a different time. And, you know, one for some reason or another, it didn't work. And so that's really really why i'm excited about this because i've been i've been working on it so long and also because again it's bernard purdy so also one thing to note we did this interview in two parts so i called him the one day and he said i can do it but i only have about 20 minutes and if you've been listening to the podcast for a while you know that the interviews are typically longer than that so the first half of this interview If it sounds like I'm a little bit off my game, I was because I was trying to fit in as much as I could. So we sort of jump around a little bit because I didn't feel like I had enough time to really spread out the interview. And then the second part of the interview, we actually have a lot more time. So it sort of opens up a little bit more and and gets a little bit more in depth. So if it sounds a little bit off and and even the audio sounds a little bit different, maybe uh, that's why it was recorded on two separate days. But All in all, it's about an hour conversation with the great Bernard Purdy. And thank you to Justin Thomas, who produces the podcast, for his amazing work on the audio. And without further ado, let's get into it with the man, the myth, the legend, Bernard Pretty Purdy. Yeah. Bernard, how are you? Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. No problem. No problem. I have. Uh, I gotta say, I've been I've been listening to your playing for for years and years and years. So it is an absolute honor to have you. And the the questions that I have are are very far ranging. Um, but let me just add. Let me just start with building a tiny bit of context. I'm guessing that there's not one person listening to this who doesn't know who you are, but. Uh, just a little bit, a short backstory of of sort of how you got started playing and where you come from. Well, I uh, come from Elton, Maryland, and that's where I got started. I was three years old, and I was listening to my teacher, who turned out to be Mr. Leonard Haywood. And uh, everything else was uh, basically centered around him for... I would say seven, ten years before I knew 
what else to do. So it was an early life for me. He was also the high school music teacher, but he was also the drummer for the big band for Todd Bessie's orchestra. And that's where I spent most of my time for 10 years, back and forth because of being with him, uh, Mr. Leonard Haven. Hmm. So and it was a good thing. It was good to me because I would go with him and set up the drums and fix anything that had to be fixed. I learned all about drums, but I wasn't allowed to speak when he would be teaching because I couldn't afford to spend the money. I didn't have the money. Um, and he allowed me to sit on the stoop. Um, <laughs> for those 10 years. Interesting. So now what type of, what type of stuff aside from the drum stuff? I mean, were you guys going through rudimental training or were you going, or were you just sort of the sponge that was just absorbing whatever, whatever you were sort of coming across? Well, it was actually both because everything that came across, I was definitely like a sponge, but it was every type of music, any kind of music. Uh, what people get today, no. It was jazz, blues, funk, R&B, pop, country, you name it. But it was all about the march and the dance. Everybody had to dance, and that's what it was like, and that's what it's been like all my life. Everything that I do, I try to make it feel like a dance, and uh, it works for me. Well, that's... worked it has. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I guess, you know, I remember talking to uh, drummer Daru Jones, and he was saying, you know, if he's not making the audience dance, then he's not doing your doing his job. Exactly. That's how we were brought up. What do you think the difference is between players then and players now? Do you think there's less of an emphasis or more of an emphasis on people dancing now? I hate to tell you, but nope. There's not an emphasis on uh, people dancing. It's an... <laughs> Interest now is how fast you can play the beats. Right. Uh, drummers today don't know what it's like to have an audience of dance. They got an audience of how technical you can be and how fast you can make your sticks go around the drum set. Now, now what is happening to me all over the world, people are asking me about the groove. And I said, well, the groove is the easiest part. And then it brings me right back to the dance. And then, well, what is that in the numbers? Oh, you want me to be technical? Okay, well, the numbers, and it comes down, a ballot is between 50 and 60 on the scale. A groove feel with attitude to dance is between 60 and 90. And when you want to go past 90 to 120, you basically right back to disco again. 
And what do they do in disco? They dance. <laughs> but it's a different kind. It is not what others are thinking about because too many people have now put the logo jazz. You play jazz at 120, you're in trouble. Yeah. Seriously. And uh, you cannot use that term. You, you can go up to about 90 and use the term and, and call it jazz. And because they want to call it swing, they want to call it uh, feel good. And But that's the way jazz is today. Jazz to people to today is still feel good, but with a groove. Right. The groove has never left. You've never been able to get rid of the groove if you're going to be good at what you do. So consequently, the groove, the only thing that's changed is whether it's being played faster or slower. That's basically it. Mm -hmm. So how did you, how did you develop that? Because you have, you have an iconic groove. Everyone knows the, the way that you play because you have, you have power, you have finesse, you have groove, you have this feel. And is that something that you think you can teach or you can learn? Or is that something that you think you were just born with? Well, for me, I was one of the lucky ones, yes. I was born with it, but I was also taught by the teacher. I have a feel. I have everything, but it's all about having a positive attitude, which is what I had to learn from my teacher. And you still have to understand that no matter what you think you know, there's always somebody out there that knows a little bit more than you. So you take the advice as it's been given, follow the directions, follow the feel, follow the attitude of what you're doing, but be positive about it. And you can do anything you want, anywhere, anytime, any place. There's nothing wrong with guys being technical and wanting to get all of these notes. But if you want to work, and earn a living, you better learn how to groove and make the music danceable so people can move their feet, their bodies, their butts. Got to do it. So if, That's the, the only if you weren't born for it, sorry to interrupt you, if you weren't born with it, how would you suggest that people develop that from a, from a practice standpoint? You have to learn how to count. Everyone learns how to count. You learn early. Mine, my thing, I look at it as natural. Believe me, I've worked all my life to have this. Now, I didn't know that I had something special. I had no idea because I always questioned my teacher. Everything he ever said to me, I had a question. So the point was is that to stop me from uh, being a dummy, okay, I always ask the question. I always ask. And he never told me that I was born with something. He just told me I had a gift. And there's the difference. Mm -hmm. The man was smart enough to say to me, you have a gift, but you still have to learn how to do this, that, and the other. And one thing that he would not let me do 
in the playing or being in the band, he wouldn't let me play drums. He wouldn't let you play? No. But I got too many drummers that he's teaching. But I was the best that he had. I was the best, period. He said, doesn't matter. I got too many drummers. You want to be in a band? I had to learn another instrument. And I said, what? He said, trumpet. I said, I don't play trumpet. He <laughs> said, well, you can't be in a band then. I would do anything I, in my power to be in a band. So I learned how to play a trumpet. Really? Yeah, yeah a year and a half later, he said, well, you're right. You can't play the trumpet. So yeah. did he, he let no. you in the band? Yeah, he let me in the band. I made a fool of myself, and I did the best I could do was just trying to get the notes out. But a year and a half later, he said, you're right. You can't play trumpet. Now, play the flute. I went from sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> but I didn't know what he was doing. I had no idea. He just wouldn't let me play drums. But he let me be in the band and make a fool of myself playing the trumpet and playing the flute. But I did learn one thing. I learned music. And this uh. big old dummy didn't realize what the man was doing. Yeah, I learned music. He didn't think you would learn it if you were playing drums? He knew I wouldn't. Yeah, because you, you could have just played. I would just play, and I could play good as anybody. It didn't matter who played. I could sit down and play right behind you. But he knew that. I didn't. He sort of needed to protect you from, from your own God-given talent and your own ego. Thank you. And boy, did I have an ego at that time. Yeah. It was pretty big. Yeah, it was pretty big. <laughs> have, yeah. Do you think that that's carried through your career, or do, do you feel like you lost that at some point? Oh, I've never lost it. No? I just had to have to control it. Right. Because ego is something that we need. We need to do that to play. Sure. To see how good we are. We need it. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I advise anybody. You really want to know about Bernard Purdy? Get my book. Let the drums speak. There, I've told on myself many, many times over. There's uh, too many. There's too many things in there that I've done wrong that I had to find out the hard way. Right. But I never forgot what I was taught in the first place. But it took me years to realize what the man had done. So, I owe everything to Mr. Hale. So give me, give me an example of something that, you know, a mistake or something that you did that, that maybe not you regretted, but was a bad decision at the time and you, and you overcame or you learned from it and look back and, and, you know, sort of use that moving forward. My biggest mistake was my mouth. Yes. Really? I talk too much. Yeah. 
I was a Mr. Know-it-all because I knew everything. I was that good. Couldn't tell me I was ever wrong because I was that good. Right. You say something, bam, I can repeat back to you 10 years from now because I was that good on remembering everything that meant something to me. It was really that simple. And uh, it cost me. Oh, yeah, it cost me big time. First time I was about 12, and uh, I was so cocky because I was so good. I could play with a big band, little band, small band. I was just good. I was super good. And uh, this kid, I had never seen him before, and he wanted to play. So it was a good thing for me. to said, oh, you, you, you're a drummer. He said, yeah. And I said, okay, all right, good. And I got up from the drums, told the band, I said, oh, let him play, let him play. We, we, we want him to play. He says he's a good drummer. And, uh, and then I went to the band and said, now you're going to give him a solo, okay? Just let him, let him play. And 32 bars later, they turned around to him and says, you got it. The guy went, he said, what? He stopped. He stood up. He says, now this is the way you play your solo. What? Sat down, played my solo, note for note, lit for lit, and everything else. 32 bars and 40 bars later, what? He stopped. Now he says, this is the way you should have played. Oh, my God. The band was the happiest people in the world. Because <laughs> they were happy, right. but not me. And uh, I, 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 I couldn't take it. I just couldn't take it. Who was the and drummer? Do you remember? Nope. I don't ever, ever want to remember. Don't want to know his name. <laughs> I don't want anybody to know who he is. I don't. <laughs> and uh, I didn't play anymore that night. Right. We played, tore the drums down. They, uh, I, the drums came to Mr. Hayward. I don't know how. I had no idea, but I didn't do it. I wouldn't stay. I was too embarrassed. Oh, you left? I left. <laughs> I left. I don't know who the kid was. I don't know where he came from, what he was about. All I know was made that much of an impression on me that messed me up for years. Years. Because I, I, I got to face these guys. I got to face this band, 14-piece orchestra. Yeah. And it was a little too much for me. My ego was knocked out of the block. Did you learn from it, or were you just pissed oh, off I learned and upset? From it. No, I learned from it. And nothing else meant anything else to me until I was 22, 23. By this time, I was big time in New York, king of the drums in New York, making all these demos for different people. Oh, I was hot stuff. And the same kind of thing happened to me again. I got blasted. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I got to hear, hear this world. story. Yeah, well, check out my book. 
I will. I will. I definitely will. So I got it. So speaking of studio sessions, New York, uh, I'm guessing that's where you recorded a lot of the Steely Dan stuff. Oh no, Steely Dan was was in New York, was in California. Uh, it was in both places. I gotta ask. Hey. So one of uh, one of the favorite tunes that one of my I love Steely Dan first of all and one of my favorite Steely Dan tunes is Home at Last which you obviously played on but there's a re- I got to ask about the signs that you put up next to your drums. So I don't know if this is a myth urban legend or if this really happened about you walking into the studio with two signs that said you done did it and you done hired the hitmaker Bernard Pretty Purdy. Yep. <laughs> so, it's all true. So, <laughs> so what is? I got to hear the story about the signs and the reasoning behind the behind it, and sort of what was going through your head when you said, "I'm going to make these signs and bring them to the studio with me." Well, it wasn't my idea in the first place. It happened to be a friend of mine, the bass player, name was Jimmy Tyrell, and he told me. He said, "Because of my ego," he says, "Freddie, you can make signs." And you can do this because people like you. But you're good at what you do. And that's the way to get your point across. Yeah, it took me two or three years. But I did it. And when I did it, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the signs. I said, wow, this is cool. This is li- I like this. So the way things went down, it was good. It was all good. But the beauty of it was I was making hit records, even the demos. Because by this time, I had already made High Hill Sneakers, Can I Get a Witness, Wonderful One, Uh, Mickey and Sylvia, Love is Strange, Uh, different ones, Uh, that. The list goes on and on and on and on. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. But it was something that I had already done. And I had already proven that I make hit records. Right. They were all demos because they couldn't repeat and couldn't redo my demos better than what the demos were when they were making masters. (laughs) So they just used the tracks? Yeah. And they put them out. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, J.J. Jackson, It's All Right. Uh, Linda. Uh, oh, 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 the list. The list goes on and on and on. Oh, I know it does. I, I'm, I'm a fan, so, so I... That, so much of that is actually in the book. So it, uh, it's a nice feeling for me because I had to grow up. And I really had to learn to grow up pretty fast. Because the way things happen, you get into that world, and you get thrown out of that world. Yeah. So, yeah. Your life in that world doesn't last too long. And that was normal. And is that just because, you know, new blood's always coming in, and they're always looking for something different? And they're always looking to beat out somebody, just like I was. I beat out a lot of drummers. But those drummers came, and they went. And I was still around when they came, and they went. They didn't come back for that second and third time. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I kept coming back. I kept reinventing the feel of what my drums were. I didn't know what the most of the time. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I loved it, and everybody else loved it, and everybody was making hit records. <laughs> That's why the signs still work, and I was able to keep them going for almost twenty years. I just haven't put them up in twenty years. You still have them? Yeah, they're running around someplace. I would love to see. I got to get a picture of those. <laughs> well, the picture is in the book. Oh, is it? Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I'm actually getting ready to go on a long trip, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get the book and read through it. So. Good. Good. I think you'll like what you're gonna read. I am. I'm sure I will. And I and I'm also gonna link to it for the podcast so that everybody can can grab a copy of the book. As well, so I, I got to ask a little bit about you know I'm sure that you've talked about this a billion times about the the Purdy Shuffle, but you and I have never talked about it, and I would love to just sort of figure out how that well, came, that came about. Well, okay, this is the last thing I can do for right now. Okay, but the Purdy Shuffle came about because of where I lived and the railroad track and buying by the railroad track because the train stopped in Elton, Maryland and the gathering of it. I just called it locomotion. Locomotion. And getting things up to speed and this, that, and the other. But the Purdy Shuffle is so different because it is a shuffle, but it's also eighth notes. They're sixteenths. They're dotted. They're triplets. They're thirty seconds. They all go. It's a whole note, half note. The beauty of it, it is not one bar. It is a two-bar phrase. And that two-bar phrase is what makes things happen. And all of it comes down to... You got every note out there. Whole note, half note, quarter note. Eighth note, dotted note, triplet. The works thirty seconds. Do you think that most people play it as a one-bar phrase rather than a two, and that's why they can't sort of wrap that's their brains around? So much, that's why they had so much trouble. They all trying to play it in one bar. Right. <laughs> two-bar phrase. <laughs> so you're playing straight time against half time. Right. So you have to use them both when you count. One, two, three, back, beat, on, three. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And then you have the upbeats. Two, 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 two. And you got the hi-hat, you got the snare, you got everything going together as one. And Sure enough, it all comes down to but you got to add the bass drum, you got to add the hi-hat, all of those things all become one. And I learned how to do all of this with my hands before I learned how to play it with sticks. Yeah, and I've seen you explain that in, in the video a lot, too, with using your hands on the snare. Mm-hmm. So the worst thing that you can do 
is to do this fast because you're going to lose the simplicity of it and you're going to lose the feel. Can't do it. Can't do it fast and make it work because it just doesn't. Hmm. All righty. I got to go. All righty. You can call me tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock, and uh, we do Okay. I, I will call you tomorrow at 10. Bernard, thank you so much. I appreciate it. No problem. All right. Talk to you tomorrow. Take a quick pause for the cause, and we'll be right back with part two of this interview. This session is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible.com takes your favorite book titles and converts them into audio form, so you can listen to them much like you're listening to this podcast. The great thing is that if you go to Audible.com forward slash drummer, that's Audible.com forward slash drummer, sign up for a free trial and you can download whatever book you would like and keep it forever. And one book that I recommend, it sort of ties into this interview, is called Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday, an amazing book about how ego can really stand in the way of a lot of your progress in your career, in your life and things like that. Again, audible.com forward slash drummer. And I definitely recommend checking out Ego is the Enemy. Evans reminds you to let no circle box you in. And the Evans Level 360 gives you the most consistent fit for your drums so you can get a greater tonal range, effortless tuning, and the freedom to express yourself any way you want. You can learn more about Evans at EvansDrumHeads.com. And now let's get back into it with the one and only Bernard Pretty Purdy. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about is sort of your approach. So your approach in the studio. So when you walk into a recording session, um, what is the approach or the headspace that, that you take to give the producer or the artist exactly what they're looking for in a tune? Oh, that to me, that's the easiest part. See, when I come in, I, uh, if they don't have music for me, then what I do is go look at the music that's on the piano. I look to see what the rhythms are, what the melody is, and some of the, um, what do you call the, uh, the figures. Mm-hmm. And it'll tell me exactly what is going on with the music. It's that simple. Hmm. So all I need to worry about is what field that they're looking for. Sure. So is there any of your, do you, do you sort of get rid of any of your personal agenda when you're in the studio and you're just there to sort of serve the producer and serve the music and, and sort of let your, cause we had mentioned, we had talked a little bit about ego uh, in, in the conversation earlier. So is that something that doesn't come into play when you're in the studio because it's not, you're not there to serve yourself. Oh, I'm not there to serve me. I'm there to serve them. That's my job. My job is to get in to the music immediately. I don't wait around and I don't wait for them to make suggestions uh, because I don't want to waste the time. See, it becomes a waste of time because they have to do that to everybody else. So I look at things the easy way, what I call the easy way out, and that basically is uh, knowing what they need. 
Mm-hmm. It's all about a need. Everybody has their need for what they want and what they want to do. My need is just getting the job done. I'm the guy that's in the corner. I'm the last person that they speak to about something that they want. Because I'm just, I'm, I'm like the fly on the wall. Don't worry about me. Tell me what you want. If you have an idea what you want, it's done. So I look at things that way, and sure enough, it works every time for me. Because, as I said, my the easiest part for me is go look at the piano part mm-hmm. and see what the melody is, what the rhythm is. And a lot of times they, you know, they write in the bass notes, they write in the bass parts, they they put it in the rhythm that they want, and then they might put in uh, a couple of horn licks or something that they feel that uh, the song needs. And it doesn't matter whether it's a demo or whether it's a, a orchestra written. It's easy for me. Sure. Now, what if, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's easy for you because you read music. Yeah. So I guess the the bigger picture is if you're a drummer out there, it would behoove you to at least learn rhythm and learn how to read rhythm and learn so that that way you can understand the melody and understand what's going on in the tune so that you're not just going in there and just basing everything solely off of feel, right? Exactly. And... And the reason why I asked this question is we talk a lot on the podcast about serving the music and about playing what's appropriate for the music. And my question has always been, what happened? How do you know if you're serving the music? What happens if you think you are? And then someone comes up to you and just says, you know, hey, man, that's that's not happening. And it's sort of the you don't know what you don't know kind of thing. Well, when you've got excuse expression. But there's always going to be a smart ass. Sure. I don't care where you go, what you do. The point is, is that what what I do is I try to help by getting as much information as I can, so I don't become the smarty. It's mm-hmm. not about ego for me when it comes down to doing the job. Right. I'm ready to do my job. I don't like to waste the time, and I don't like doing things 8, 10, 50, 100 times. I do it because that's what they want. But I'm going to give them my best in the first, second, and third shot. And it's only going to go downhill. Mm-hmm. So you got to wait for other people to get them, for them to get their act together. Because I got mine together in the first, second, and third take. Right. They and- don't take and that's it's, usually when the magic happens, right? In the you know, it's it's usually the first or second take part. that's the best. The early part is where the magic. That's the most natural. That's what you do naturally because you're now tuned in to what's going on around you. So you're not trying to make up something that that ain't there. Everybody's got a part. Everybody has a part, and you start to play off of each other. That's your job. That is the way hit records are made. And young people today have no idea of what somebody is thinking because they're not in the studio together. 
you got people doing things individually, coming in and putting their parts on and coming in and putting another part on, and this one's going to put another. you got 10, 15 different people putting something on that nobody knows each other. Well, I had to learn how to be a, a diplomat. I really did. Because too much of that is what happens to me. I sometimes become the, one of the last people that they put on because they all think that, oh, well, Purdy is this genius and he can, he can make this happen, make that happen. That's hard work. <laughs> That's hard it is. freaking work. Because I got to play to something that's already there. I don't get a chance to enhance everybody else and let them play off me. But that's been the beauty of the kind of things that I've done practically all my life. I've been lucky because I do have that gift. And I have been able to work off of other people and and make things work. But it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Sure. Sometimes I know that I would do something different, but when I'm locked in, there's nothing that you can do. You're saying Absolutely if all the other nothing. parts have already been recorded, and they don't want to change anything, so I have to lock in to what's there. Right, right. Do you think that that sucks a lot of the life out of not only your playing but the, but the tunes as a whole? Of course it does. Sure. You know, I, I agree. I just didn't. I didn't want to put. I didn't want to put words in your mouth. So that's why. I, uh, no, I, I'm limited to what I can do. When they're not going to change anything, they want a certain part from me. Okay, I'll go and do it. I'll stick to it. Bam. And then they can go ahead and fix all they want, however they want. They can start putting the what I call curly cues. You know, put some fills here, put some fills there, put me, and they can do it themselves. But it ain't what I would normally do. Mm-hmm. But it's a job. Yeah, it paints you in the corner. Yep, it's a job. Mm-hmm. So do the job, smile, and go home. <laughs> <laughs> so you would mention you you mention the word genius. And so I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, do you consider yourself a genius? Do you think that you're a genius? Oh, of course not. <laughs> no? I, I just know what I'm doing, and it makes my job so much easier. Sure. Genius, all of that other kind of stuff, that comes from, I look at it as other people. I just happen to have a gift that's good enough to make music happen. I'm a groove maker. I'm a timekeeper. I got all these things inside of me that makes the music happen. And it always happens with me. That don't make you a genius. What makes you geniuses is when they put all this stuff together, when all of the ingredients, all the different people that you find that you can put together and do it every time, every time, you write. You know, I'm not a Stevie Wonder. I, uh, <laughs> Stevie learned from me. Stevie used to come and stand behind me and watch me play. And this was wonderful. It was a wonderful feeling. But damn, my, the 
hair on the back of my neck would be standing up because he'd be behind me looking and listening and, and watching. And that's what he'd be saying. Purdy, I'm just, I'm just watching what you're doing. You know? I said, Stevie, get from behind me. You're making me nervous. <laughs> but, he, he, but he knows what he wants. Sure. When somebody knows what they want, let them do it. Let them do it. Man, it's, it's so easy. It's, and it's so easy to fix their part. Mm-hmm. When you've got somebody like that, but that, I consider him a genius. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I'm a I'm a Stevie fan. So there was there was one question that I wanted to ask and sort of circle back a little bit. We had mentioned Steely Dan. We were talking about Home at Last and all that kind of stuff. And someone mentioned to me if I could ask you when you were recording, let's just say Home at Last, was were you what was your playing style? Were you playing quietly and and they were just sort of using the mics to fill up? fill up all of this sound or were you playing hard? Because I think that you're a powerful player. Um, I think that, that you have this sort of strong presence on the kit. So when you're playing home at last, are you playing quietly and the mics are sort of really hot or are you actually, you know, are you playing hard on that tune? Well, I'm playing hard on the song, but I'm also playing to the point to whereas what I need, to come through. I don't need them to compress and use compression machines and stuff like that. No. I do what I do deliberately. And what I did, how I made that happen is that they had no idea what they were looking for. They had already played that song four, five times with the whole band. When I came in, I knew what I wanted to do after the first eight bars of listening. And I just started smiling and they, they didn't quite understand me because they already told me that they didn't want to shuffle. They didn't want straight eights. They didn't want this and they didn't want that. And I said, okay, well, let me hear the song. And then I can tell you what needs to be done. Yeah. After eight bars, I was smiling and grinning from ear to ear. And they stopped the song after in the middle. And they finally said, well, why are you smiling? I said, well, because I know what I need to do. And they said, well, what is that? It's a pretty shuffle. No, 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 we don't want any shuffle. We don't want this to <laughs> I said, you've never heard it. So... What's your problem? You've never heard what I do. Sure enough, they turn around, look at each other, and says, okay. And uh, four bars into the song, they knew exactly what they wanted then. Because it was all there. And it, it fits like a glove. Of course. Yeah. So now, did you play... Did So I saw... I know that Rick Morata played on Peg, but then also I know that there's mention of you playing on Peg. Yep, we both did. Three or four, two or three other drummers played on Peg too. Really? They might have. They might have. See, at that time they were taking pieces from different songs that they liked, and they might have taken a piece from three or four of us. I don't know, but he wants the credit for it. He got it. 
right. it doesn't bother me. None of that stuff bothers me. I just do my job. Well, and there was a time, you know, or I should say around that time, there were a lot of people playing on a lot of different records that weren't getting credit for them and still haven't gotten credit for them. And sometimes, from what I understand, some people didn't even know what records they were playing on. They would just record something and, okay, next, 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 and they didn't know who it was for or what artist was, what who it was for or what. That was a way of life at that time. That makes the difference. Right. Way of life. If you don't know what you're doing, hey, forget about it. Right. can't remember everything that you do. When you're a studio musician, you go from one place to the other to the other. Right. Now, for me, it was a job that I loved, and my diaries told me everything. I used to write all my stuff down. That's why I remember so much of what I'd done. Mm-hmm. I didn't worry. But I had my own signature for sound-wise. Eh, yeah, that sounds like... Uh, I don't remember that. Uh, yeah. It was like that. Right. And then I got it from people who I played with and whose songs uh, that were hit that nobody knew. Oh, pretty, you played on my first record and my second... On my third, fourth, I said, oh, yeah. That brings back memory. (laughs) Right. Right. And I love it. I love it very much. Still do. So what... Have fun, Doug. Well, I did not interrupt you, but I... So I have to ask, so what about all the the Beatles stuff? I know that there was... There was... Well, you, you can read my book, and that'll tell you how I dealt with the Beatles. I don't give any more interviews on the Beatles business because it's behind me. Okay. Beatles didn't make me. No way, shape, form, or fashion that the Beatles make me what, who I am. Right. Absolutely not. So I'm on over 4,000 albums, and I don't care whether anybody... I know that the Beatles thing becomes important to so many people because I talked about it for so many years. Mm-hmm. But now... Other folks are writing about it. There are other people putting their information down. And because now they're not as scared to say that they fixed things. They played on it. But I got black all the blacklist behind the Beatles. I don't care if anything ever happened to me with the Beatles. Period. Right. Doesn't bother me anymore. And believe me, they didn't make me. That's the dawn show. Well, sure, and I, that's and the reason why I wanted to bring it up was because I know that that before you were sort of you weren't talking about it until the book came out, and that's why. So I wasn't sure if you were open to talking about it, but I do suggest that the listeners pick up the book because I'm sure, uh, uh, even in addition to all the Beatles stuff that that you talk about in there, that the book is amazing. I just bought it yesterday. I haven't started re- reading it yet, but I bought it. So, um. So, and I know that this this is going to be a ridiculous hard question to answer, but if someone if someone said, "All right, Bernard, what's a tune that you could that you could sort of hand to someone and say, "This is one of the proudest tunes that I've done," or "This is this is something that that really is memorable to me." Do you have any specific tunes that that really stick out in your I, mind? I got a couple of hundred. <laughs> but that's not even the point. 
Yes, I can say that. And I can say that because it was written by Stevie Wonder. I heard it first, and then I took the information to Aretha and told her she needed to do the song because Stevie wasn't going to do it. He wasn't happy with it. What was that, respect? And nope, until you come back to me. Ah. That's right. Oh, yeah, Otis Redding wrote respect, right? Yeah. That's right. Otis Redding wrote respect. But everybody thinks the reason though, because that's the only way it's ever done. Mm-hmm. Stevie's song, Tell You Come Back to Me, is only done Aretha's way. Aretha, okay, uh, her first hit records and all of this stuff, they were done and written by Carol King and her sister. It wasn't hmm. written by Aretha. Huh, I didn't know that. But, uh, well, most people don't. But they only sung her way. That's interesting. Because anything that she puts, when she sings, is her signature. Sure. Bridge over troubled waters, that's Paul Simon. Yep. That's what I'm talking about. But everybody does it a recent way. Paul Simon don't even do it his way anymore. Yeah. Yep. She has identity. When she takes on a song, it becomes her. Worldwide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge. I, you know, that's to, to sort of, to have your identity, to have your own sound, to develop your, your own sound. I mean, I can listen to a record for the most part and, uh, and I can say, oh, that sounds like Bernard. Oh, that sounds like Steve Gadd. You know, to do that sort of thing to me is a, is a very challenging thing. And when, once you can, once you get that, I feel I feel like you've sort of, you know, arrived in some way, shape, or form. It feels good. <laughs> <laughs> so question about about up and coming drummers, if you could if you could impart wisdom on, you know, someone who's ten, fifteen, twenty, really trying to have a go at, at doing this. And pl- and, and, well, and just in their playing in general. Let me just start you this way. Stop putting an age limit on music, on especially on drumming. Don't do that. That's the worst thing that you can do. Because you put people in a pickle when they are 15, 20 years old, 25, and you tell them, well, if you don't get it by this such, such time, you're not going to get it. That's a lot of BS. Mm-hmm. That hurts. That'll hurt somebody who starts working on something and they like it, and they people come back to each other. No, you don't have a chance. You gotta continue, and you gotta this. It's the pitch. There is no age limit. Mm-hmm. There's none. No age limit at all of actually playing music. You go to have fun with. It. I don't care if you can't read music or anything else. You go in there to have fun, you will learn something that you don't even know or realize what it is. 
And if you get good at it, then if you want to continue and you want to be able to do this and actually make a living at it, then, then get some of the technical part. Learn something. Learn about stuff that you don't know. Don't be afraid to jump in with both feet. Right. Don't ever be afraid of the music. Because the music is the only language that's universal. It's worldwide. Everybody loves music. And you can do anything you want if you choose. Yeah. And I agree with you that a lot of people put that time limit on it or they say, okay, well, you know, well, you're, you know, you're 30 now. Don't you think you should maybe give up on that and try something else or, or whatever the case may be. But if you love it, why not, why not keep doing it? And you can still get a, uh, as they call quote, a day job. Get it. But don't let that, don't let anybody take away your passion. Right. Because that, you will hate them for life. Well, I think a lot of people poo-poo it if you if you get a day job, then all, all of a sudden now you're not a real musician because you have a day gig. That's a, that's a bunch of cool. Yep. I, I, you know what the rest of the word is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But that's... I get so many of them that come in and that want lessons. And the first thing that comes out of their mouths is that I really wanted to do this 15, 20 years ago. I said, all you had to do was continue. Don't let anybody stop you from doing your passion. Mm-hmm. No one. Nobody told you you have to read music. No. You have to have fun doing what you do. And that's the only way that it will last. Sure. If you hate it, you're not going to want to, you know, or if it's... You're not going to want to take the time. Right. If it, becomes a, time. if it becomes a challenge or whatever the case may be, you know, then... Well, it's going to be challenging. I shouldn't say that. But if it if it's something that you don't embrace that challenge and you don't enjoy that sort of thing, if you're not having fun and you make it more of a job than a passion, then yeah, then I think that a lot gets lost in that. So Definitely gets lost in the sauce. Sure. So now you would mention lessons. So you do teach lessons privately, right? Sure. Yeah. And you I are, have, where, what area are you in? Uh, New York, New Jersey. Right. I knew that. I was I trying to figure the, out what town. You're close. You're actually close to me. I'm going to come over. I'm going to, I'm going to take some lessons with you. Oh, okay. I want to do good that. Enough. Sounds good to me. We'll, we'll line that up. But for anyone else, uh, they can, they can just go to bernardperty.com. Mm-hmm. Yep, and they will put you in, in touch with me, and, and then we'll move on and figure out what to do and how to do it, when we can do it. No, no problem. Amazing. So if anyone is in the New York, New Jersey area, or you're heading here, or anything like that, I, I strongly suggest uh, getting in touch with Bernard and... And taking some send lessons me, with them. Send me an email. Believe me, you'll be answered back quickly. We don't waste time. We don't have time to waste. Life is too short. And life is a wonderful thing. 
wonderful. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, Bernard, thank right, you. Sir. Thank you so much for, for doing this. I appreciate it. I've been wanting to get you on this podcast for a while, and I also want to acknowledge you not only for what you've done for the music world and for the music lovers out there, but for me personally, and you have no idea how much of an influence you've had on my playing over the years. So I want to acknowledge you for that. And I want to thank you for, for all of the, all of the great music that you've put out into this world. I appreciate you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it too. Absolutely. Appreciate great. And like I said, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get in touch with you and and come out and and take some lessons with you. Uh, but in the meantime, keep doing what you're doing and uh, and have a great rest of your day. You got it. All right. Thanks, Bernard. No problem. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. There you have it. The one and only Pretty Purdy, and I hope you enjoyed that. I know that I did. It was it was a long time coming for me, and just awesome to have him on the podcast. Also, I would love if you picked up a copy of his book. I just downloaded it myself, so I'll be reading it while I'm traveling, so I'm looking forward to that. And you can check out the show notes for everything that we talked about at drummersresource.com forward slash 190. And if you have anyone who you think would like this podcast, share it with them. Let them know about it, and that just helps spread the word about Drummers Resource, and I would appreciate it. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.